Ladies, gentlemen, or what have you, I'm Orion Lavelle. I'm Travis Mattingly. And you're listening to Tooth and Nail, a monstrous podcast where today we're going to talk about D&D 5th edition monster manual. We're continuing along. We're going to talk about animated objects, and then we'll see uh, how long that takes, and then we'll possibly do one monster more. Yeah, the the blessing of the end of the A section of the monster manual is that it's a bunch of little things. Yeah, the end is in sight, so we've only got animated objects, onkegs, and azers left, and then we'll be moving right on to banshees, which is cool. We haven't, aside from ghouls, we haven't talked about undead, and I um I typically like undead, even though... I think that they retreat, retread a lot of the, like, um, I I did not accomplish what I wanted to in life and I'm mad about it thing. Uh, yeah. I think... Banshee, Banshees are, like, a, a special one, though, so yeah, I'm kind well, of excited to talk about those. I think, you know, it's the same thing where every aberration is kind of a, you know, uh, a, an interstellar creature beyond which the human mind cannot comprehend. I think it yeah. just comes with the territory that undead have that... You know, that, uh, I, I think it is, I think it's a means of categorization, right? So part of what being an undead is, is having this unfinished business trope to them. And then though, the way that undead differentiate is how they articulate, right? It's what they do afterwards that makes them cool. Don't want to get too tropey and stereotypey. Yeah. But that's, that's not what we're talking about right now. Uh, right now we're talking about stuff that fits in like a haunted castle kind of tableau thing, but... But it's more magic than ghost. Yes, it is more arcane than unfinished business. And that thing would be, as we've said, the animated object. So without any further ado, unless you've got some tangent that we can (laughs) dick around on for a little bit, let's, uh, get going. So, animated objects. What yes. are they, Orion? So, animated objects are objects that have been animated, shockingly enough. With <laughs> Yeah, go pull that surprise out of nowhere. Pull You're that telling Shyamalan. me these are a bunch of drawn objects? Yeah. Boom. They're drawn on paper? Like <laughs> animations? No, in fact. They are objects that can move or, and uh, occasionally talk what like a man can. This seems unreal. I don't believe you. Well, the idea is these objects, they are animated with uh, various forms of magic in order to fulfill the commands of the caster. Interestingly... Why, why are wizards always putting their magic in things? It's what they do. They have no other option. It's what they're beholden to. In the same way that a shark can't stop eating beautiful dolphins. <laughs> can't just leave well enough alone. No. Wizards gotta put their magic in things. So the idea is... The animated object is very much a magical construct, and this is our first construct, so we'll get into what a construct entails in a little bit. The idea is they these animated objects, they act independently when not overtly commanded by the caster to do various simple tasks. And truth be told, I wish that, like, there are a couple things where this applies to D&D, I wish that uh, this was more largely represented in the spell list. Like, I think it would be really neat to be able to, as you know, you roll up your wizard, 
and then you just make like a de facto artificer that can has a bunch of tables and chairs that are his ma- imaginary friends. Yeah, like more permanent construct creation. Yeah. Because there's like a couple spells, I think, that sort of do it. But yeah. none of them last longer than like a few minutes. No, there's definitely, I don't see any, or at least I can't remember off the top of my head, any that create a lasting chair friend. Yeah. I, I want me a chair friend. <laughs> Summon familiar, find familiar, but it's a chair. Yeah, uh, so we can have awkward conversations while my ass is on it. <laughs> the book notes that some animated objects, especially ones that are magicked up within the Feywild, that crazy plane of existence, some animated objects can have full-on conversations and even develop full identities. Um, I So here's the thing. There are a set of effectively, as I understand it, magically created robots within D&D called the Warforged. D&D loves to do this thing where it leans very far into like a spellpunk kind of vibe, where like yeah. everything's magic, there are airships and guns made out of magic and that whole thing. I uh, I think I, I walk a tightrope on whether or not I'm into that. <laughs> Traditionally, like, I like me an airship because it harkens back to 10-year-old Orion playing Final Fantasy. Yeah. I don't think I'm all that into Warforged, though. Really? Yeah, I think it's. I think that's too far. I can't explain it other than that. Whenever you add punk as a suffix to a word, <laughs> I, my interest <laughs> falls off a little bit. I think that's the... Yeah, I guess so. But I think that's just kind of like a... Uh, people who use Warforged are people you don't like. <laughs> that might also be the case. I... I feel because like... really, a Warforged is just a sentient golem, and I like golems. Yeah, I like golems. I like like a, I like like a traditional Frankenstein's monster golem. Sure. I like or like Golurk and Pokemon. I like that. I like <laughs> like, I like lumbering monstrosity golems. Not this is and a lot of the Warforged I've seen are just like, HK forty sevens, but not like sure. as cool as HK forty seven. They don't have like the personality. They're just like uh, robo guys. And I, <laughs> I see. I kind of see what you're saying. It's more like, why not just make a regular person? Why make a robot? Yeah, there's a bit of that in there. I think you know, if somebody came at me with an HK47, I might like Warforged a little bit more. But as it stands, <laughs> I don't really see the the point. Like, I don't see what is interesting about. Uh, mechanized magic robot you just like kind of blew my mind without meaning to because i was the the other golem with sentience i was gonna bring up is shale from dragon age origins and shale is absolutely just hk47 but a golem (laughs) and it had never stricken me that that was the case and that bioware made both of those things they pulled a fast (laughs) one on you they really did holy shit fool me once shale on you (laughs) god damn (laughs) Uh, so if you're like me and you don't find Warforge terribly great, um, it, but you still, but Orion and Travis, I have this problem where I still want to do the what is human love trope. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you're like me and you don't like Warforge, then this kind of, you know, juking it towards having an animated object that has a full on personality. Like I'm into Johnny Five the carpet. <laughs> I think that would be kind of neat. <laughs> have, a, have a carpet that wants to, you know, want to know what love is. 
I love the idea of an animated carpet folding itself up into a mouth so it can talk. Yeah, that would be pretty good. It has that, like, <laughs> Harry Potter magic kind of feel where, yeah. you know, howlers and whatnot, envelopes turning into shouty things in the movies, at least. I also like the idea that an animated armor set that talks, like, the every every word it says sounds like it's coming from a deep metal well. Yeah, yeah, like, well, oh. yeah, it goes full on Alphonse Elric. See, I like anime sometimes. Yeah, I I can do the anime, fellow children. Yeah. <laughs> um, God, I, all I can think of is Steve Buscemi. <laughs> I hit you with one of those Buscemi off tracks. Yeah, you got me with the Buscemi hammer, and now I, <laughs> and my brain is gone. We kind of glossed over it, but the three main types of animated objects in the book uh that it kind of gives you stat blocks for our animated armor flying swords <laughs> and the rug of smothering yes which i feel like things escalate very quickly <laughs> yeah they get very hostile very fast <laughs> this is an armor that just sits in the hallway it's it's good to look at this is a sword it flies around it's it could be dangerous, but it doesn't have to be. And this is a rug of smothering. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's uh, an express riff on a carpet of flying. You know, I think, sure. and we'll get to yeah. that later. I think that's the idea is like, it's supposed to feel like an uh, enchanted object more than an animated object. Like it's supposed to be the the enchanted opposite of a carpet of flying. Hi, welcome to my home. This is my table, this is my chair, and this is my dresser of patricide. <laughs> yeah, I also see it from that angle as well. <laughs> but we'll get to that very, we'll get to that very soon. Uh, first on the list, we got to talk about animated armors. Yes. And animated armors, they are almost always enchanted plate armor, plate armor specifically. So the big... You know, plates, big metal plates. Yeah. Uh, it clamors as it stomps from place to place. It the the artwork for the animated armor is this very spiky, spiral engraved looking chum. Uh, pointedly, it has these like knee and wrist shields. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you have the artwork up right now. I do. Yeah. It's a very strange design choice. The the wrist and the wrist and knee shields that it's got. The going wrist on. ones are the ones that really put, are really weird to me. I could see like big knee pads or whatever. Yeah. Like knee plates. I've seen those on armor before, but the wrist ones are really like they look like pulled back Cestus. Yeah. It's like, like he's gonna give you a real spiky punch. Yeah. Or like if Batman was even more committed to not doing harm. <laughs> to not doing harm. Look at this thing. Yeah, well, like, yeah. You know what I mean. Instead of having the spiky bits, he's got a shield. All oh, right. He attack, but he also defend. He protect. protect. I fuck up. <laughs> I fucked that up. Sorry. He, he fuck up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so these animated armors are often enchanted with speech as part of a, a magical power play of sorts. They're able to shout out menacing phrases like a kind of like a demonic action figure. They can also deliver riddles. Yes, they can also deliver riddles as part of their primary general function of being guardians. They, uh, it's kind of a means as a DM, if you're looking for a way to make a door that isn't a door, you 
place an animated armor in front of it, and then it can demand a password that you can find later in the dungeon or later in a different encounter, or present a riddle for, you know, the one guy in your party who likes riddles to feel smart. <laughs> uh, this, the fact that it's always a plate armor thing really makes me want, like, a silly skeleton version of the animated armor that's just made of crappy <laughs> leather armor that's got, like, a Skeletor voice. I can see that. I think that would be really funny and cool. I also hadn't considered that you could just animate the armor of somebody who had already died. So yeah. it's just it's just got a skeleton friend on the inside that isn't actually alive. That would be neat. There's a bit like that in uh, New World Blues in that Fallout New Vegas expansion that has uh, some of the enemies <laughs> in that are just effectively armors that their AI have taken over and the corpses inside or the people inside them have long since died. I think that's actually a thing from Doctor Who. Oh, yeah? It might be a reference to Doctor Who, because that is a thing from Doctor Who, but who knows? <laughs> it could be. They're fall those Fallout boys are real referential. So, mechanically, the animated armor, they have a massive AC for their CR. They have an 18 AC for their one, their, you know, one numeric CR. I love that it's natural armor, as though it was like... Yeah, Because well. usually you only see that when it's like the hide of a beast. I love that it doesn't even try to be like, it's 18 because it's plate armor, but it's natural armor. Yeah, well, like, once it becomes its own entity, it is technically its natural armor. I guess so, yeah. Yeah. They also have a lower HP than they seem they ought to, but... HP values this early on in the game rarely follow the, you know, statistics by CR chart that they give you in the Dungeon Master Guide. Uh, at least as as much as I've found, 33 is about average for that kind of CR creature. Yeah, challenge rating 1 is what the armor is, and that is definitely... You would have to put a lot of these into a hallway for it to mean anything to a party above level like 2. Yeah. <laughs> And I think that's what these guys are meant to do. I think these guys are supposed to be early bosses. I, I think what these guys are supposed to do is I think they're supposed to introduce the idea of a construct. So animated armors, they have a slower speed to represent this kind of ponderous plate armor thing at 25 feet as opposed to 30 for the average creature. This, like I said before, I think this is... So constructs, they're special creatures. They have a set of immunities that link them. Every single construct has this, which, you know, on the whole, they make sense to what being a construct means. So the idea is that they don't have veins or brains, so they can't be hurt by poison damage. They don't have psychological needs, senses, or emotions, so they can't be blinded, charmed, deafened, exhausted, or frightened, or conditionally poisoned. They also, and this is kind of where it falls apart for me a little bit, they can't be paralyzed or petrified, which... I always thought was just like a magical effect, not necessarily one that requires flesh and blood. Like I always thought it was just like a like a magic binding or a transmutation where you're just turning this thing regardless of what it's made from into stone. I think that's it's a very fifth edition thing uh, for for like paralyzing and petrification to be non-magical effects because there's like the there's poisons that petrify you and paralyze you. There's just a monk punching you and affecting your nervous system. And if right. you don't ha have a nervous system, you can't be paralyzed. I thought that Petri was stunned. Petrified is weird. Oh, yeah, that is stunned. Hold person, I guess, is also what I was thinking. But, like... Do these count as people, though, is the thing. Hmm. 
There's also hold monster, both Yeah, paralyzed. but then by that point, you're level six. So, like, I can see it stopping as being, like, a, you know, if this is supposed to be a boss and you want it to last a little while, you can get hold person when? Uh, hold person is only, like, a second level spell, I think. Yeah, so maybe not for a boss, but for an encounter, you know, if this is your, if you've got a couple of these animated armors protecting your big important vault, these animated armors can be trounced fairly easily by a hold person, so I think the idea is that they're resistant to this fairly powerful early game spell in order to make them a little bit more ferocious. But by the time you get to level 6, these guys are kind of obsolete, or whatever level you get hold monster at. So like... Oh, later. Hold monster is like a fourth level spell or something. Yeah, so whenever you get hold monster, by that point these guys are, or like constructs in general, I feel like you should just allow the player to have that paralysis because the players have reached that point in the power curve and it makes sense. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're right. So I, I, I just don't get why constructs can't be paralyzed or petrified. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I just... It's a, yeah, I guess you're right. You know what? I was originally thinking about it from like a you're paralyzing them by affecting the mind, but I think in a more literal fashion, hold holding a creature should just hold it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I I was really kind of banking on you having like but wait, Orion, have you considered this? Cuz otherwise I'm very much stumped on why this is the way it is. Yeah, I, I, well, you, you really, like, you trumped me immediately on the one thing I was thinking of, because as far as I'm aware, let me just do a quick little burp, burp, burp. There isn't any flavor text for hold person, so never mind. <laughs> I was going to say, maybe it specifically says, like... No, I, I don't, I didn't think it did, but I wasn't sure. I'm glad you checked. I don't know. I think, yeah, I think you've found a thing that should not be. I don't think that animated <laughs> objects should be immune to paralyzation. Petrification, I could see them being immune to that as part of the magical enchantment. Sure. Yeah, I can... Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's like, it, and this is kind of a charitable read of it, maybe it's their their magics are getting cross-wired with the other magics, and so magic as a whole is, like, you can't bind what is animate. This kind of idea that whatever magic is animating these things overrides any magic that would hold them or make them deanimate. Yeah, I mean, that that's the only thing I could think. The the most charitable, the only thing I could think. Yeah, and that's me grasping at straws. I don't... It's it, it's kind of like, um, this isn't the way it is in 5th edition or D&D, but it's kind of like how in Oblivion, skeletons were immune to paralyze. Because yeah. if, you, if you paralyze a skeleton that's held together with magic... It just turns into a bunch of bones rolling down a hill, don't it? <laughs> yeah, I I guess so. Yeah, I so henceforth as part of my headcanon, that's how I'll just read it as like whatever spell is, that is animating these creatures is powerful enough to override whatever temporary paralysis or petrification that you can incur. And so it is. Boom. Canon. Done. <laughs> So we, we said it, so it's true. Yeah, that's that's D and D, baby. You say things, <laughs> and then that's how the fiction goes. These guys also can introduce blindsight. This is one of the earliest creatures in the game that have blindsight, which might be a fun way to foil a party that is maybe infatuated with 
invisibility later on down the line. Like, I know invisibility is a spell that you don't typically get until third level, but these guys can hang around for a little while. You can design animated armor encounters, you know, just throw more animated armors into the mix later on down the line. And this might be a fun way to introduce that means of foiling the party overly reliant on invisibility. Yeah, or as is always an option, just <laughs> bump up the HP and the attack power on an animated armor and call it a day. Of course, yeah, that also is a work. So they have blind sight. The blind sight is balanced fairly naturally by the these guys having a really low passive perception. So it allows rogues to do what comes naturally without having to worry about breaking line of sight with them. Right? Does that make sense? Am I crazy? Uh, hold on. Say that again. So the it way sounded I, like it made sense, but it didn't like click together in my head. The <laughs> the way I understand it. Blindsight kind of foils Rogue's hide ability a little bit. Yeah, I believe it does. Well, is it like, does Blindsight work like Tremor Sense? Um, probably not. Maybe you're right. I I was thinking that it made kind of a sense where like they can't see, so they just have uh, a kind of magical ability to reach out in space. But there is a difference between Blindsight and Tremor Sense. Actually, you're correct. Am I? Yeah, Tremor Sense... Tremor Sense literally detects, like, vibrations and stuff, so you still couldn't sneak near something with Tremor Sense, unless, like, you had, like, a 40 stealth. Uh, but Blind Sight is literally just, it can perceive its surroundings without relying on sight within a radius. Yeah. So, so yeah, you just... So there's the kind of balance there. The idea being, these guys can hear super well, or, you know, detect space without having to worry about line of sight they have the ability to do that but they have a very low passive perception so ideally the rogue can just sneak super hard and their footsteps aren't going to be detected you also can't fly around this thing to try to get away from it because blind sight lets them see in the air as well that's the thing tremor sands can't do yes so it allows your rogue to continue to be a rogue without fretting about it too much as opposed to tremor sense which we'll get into in a monster in the near future these guys, they have my favorite trait that Constructs can get, which is anti-magic susceptibility. I think that this is a really fun way to reward a thinking player. So the idea is that if a Construct with this trait, which I believe is pretty much all of them, if they get stuck in an anti-magic field due to the nature of their Construct being, they fall apart. You know, their, their, their animation is created through magic if there's a place where magic is depressed they fall apart. What's pretty great is that they aren't killed instantly, which is what I thought happened. Yeah, so so the idea is like they anti-magic as a spell, you don't get field of anti-magic for a long ass time. However, the much more accessible dispel magic spell, which you know you can get pretty much right away, it suppresses the magic if you cast it on an animated object, which forces the construct to make a con constitution save, con save, or fall unconscious for a minute. I like that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and presumably once they are unconscious for the minute, they cannot wake back up. Like, like if, uh, like say with the sleep spell, like if yeah. you put some, if you put something to sleep, if you hit it, it can wake back up. This yeah. does not say anything about them being able to wake back up. They are just unconscious for a minute. Yeah, you dispelled that shit. They're done. Yeah, uh, which is pretty cool. I think you know it. It obviously rewards the thinking player, uh, and it it gives a little um, advantage to early on wizards who I can imagine 
very easily the wizard who in the first three or so levels feels kind of useless because they don't get a lot of spell slots and they're they don't get access to the really cool spells at the very least until level three so i can see this making the first level wizard the first and second level wizard feel pretty cool pretty easily so like that that's good <laughs> on the other hand they have a trait that i for the most part you know loathe entirely with every fiber of my being <laughs> just keeping it chill they have this trait called false appearance and the 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 phrasing there is that when the armor or you know creature that has this trait remains motionless it is indistinguishable from a regular object so in this case a regular suit of armor this feels very broken it feels very like cheap it feels like an easy way for the dm to screw the player out of a, a solid investigation check and forces a surprise round in any scenario where you engage with this kind of creature. It's I the don't know, man. <laughs> it feels like the opposite of how a mimic in Dark Souls works, where a mimic you feel, you know, it gives you a real sense of backpattery. It makes you feel really good because you were paying attention. You saw the chain, you attack the mimic, you win. You you succeeded by the virtue of your own intelligence and intent attention, your ability to detect something weird going on whereas with a this false appearance it completely screws your players outside of that feeling and i know like it is mar but orion and travis or at least but orion <laughs> shouldn't you know you don't have access to graphics and the ability to present those minute details in the same way as you do in dark souls i disagree I think that there is a way that you can arrange your spaces to both create and then present breaks in patterns. So like, for example, if you have an instance in a dungeon where as the DM, you you present things that should not correlate. So like, why why is the suit of armor in the kitchen? Or, you know, why is this suit of armor in the adjacent room when we just passed the armory? that had, you know, two, three suits of armor on this side of the room, and then two suits of armor and a missing armor stand on this other side of the room that should trip the players off that something is fucky. I think the idea is, as, your D as the DM, you should be able to arrange your rooms, your scenes, and your encounters in order to place those patterns and then break them and then allow the players who notice those sorts of things not necessarily to overplay the breaks and patterns, but just present them. And if the players notice them, they are rewarded for doing so. So the player who notices that that uh, suit of armor in the adjacent room says, goes, takes it upon themselves to say, ah, that seems weird. Let me make an investigation check on that. And then they are rewarded for doing so. The rules is written with these, with the, the way it is with false appearance, is that the player goes, even if you set up and present that pattern break, the player goes, ah, that seems weird. Let me investigate that. And they are, rules as written, unable to make that detection no matter what. And that feels wrong to me. Uh, mm, I'm just, I, <laughs> I feel like you literally fought your own point up until the very end there. How do you mean? The entire point of it is that a player has no way to know, but you then presented an entire series of ways that they could know. Yes, they can't roll for it, but they didn't have to, and that's the point. Huh. They're, 
the they there's they know something is wrong. Inspecting it is just going to cause combat to start. Uh, I don't know. Conver conver conversely, this is also another way to make a wizard shine, because you go into a hallway and you see something's fucky. You cast detect magic. Boom! That that armor is magic. I can see that in the instances where the players are rolling badly. So, like, if you make an investigation check, you roll a six, and the DM says no, it's fine then you think, no, I rolled really badly. In that metagame way that you, you know, right, wrong, or whatever, the players think. If you roll a 20, you know, if you happen to get a crit or you happen to, like, roll an 18 on this investigation check, the DM says, no, it's fine. The players have no reason to believe it's anything other than fine. Uh, if you roll a natural 20 on an investigation check or even above a certain number on an investigation check, you tell them that the armor does not appear different from the other suits of armor at all. However, you do f feel that it is incredibly suspicious and clearly out of place and something is wrong. I I think, really, it's just kind of a... This is another example of 5th edition letting a DM take charge of a situation without, the player, without giving the players the opportunity to roll themselves out of any situation. Hmm. Because that's a thing that I think happens a lot in D&D that shouldn't is where a player is just like, I want to roll to figure out the problem. And then if they roll a high enough number, the DM lets them figure out the problem. Right. I I, I love false appearance. I don't. I, I completely disagree that a player should be able to, especially just a random rogue, should be able to roll investigation high enough to know that this is an enchanted piece of armor. The, the example that you gave is contingent on the DM providing more information than what is required by the trait. So like in the example that, you know, in the example you provided that the DM says, no, this is a suit of armor, but it feels weird. You're still hinting as the DM that something is wrong. The, the simple trait, the simple definition of the trait is that it is, right. it, it doesn't, it, can allow for that, but it doesn't ask you to, and nowhere in the monster manual, or even in the DM guide, suggests that you should take that extra step to help your players. Yeah, and if you don't want to, you shouldn't. It's. I feel like, the, the problem is that to even roll to check it means that they have figured out something's wrong, is what I'm saying. They suspect that something's wrong, they don't know. And you sure. as the DM being able, you know, you as the DM who is forced by this trait to say, no, it's fine, I think misleads the player in a way that feels unfair to me. I suppose so. I don't read it as being forced to say, no, it's fine, though. So I don't know. I We're reading it slightly differently, and we are both applying modifiers to it that I don't think are expressly stated. I think, honestly, your way is better. Tr truth be told, yeah. I think the example you provided is better. The DM as a fan of the player, should be like, should kind of take the, this is a half investigation, half insight check, where you sh you as the DM say, yeah, this is a regular suit of armor, but yeah, it's also weird that it's positioned where it is. The way the rules are written, there's no, the DM's not beholden to take that extra step. Yeah, I... I was I was putting the additional like and that's weird to kind of like sate your desires. I personally still think that you don't have to the way you're reading it is that false appearance means that if somebody rolls to investigate the armory, you as the DM have to say it's fine. But that's not what it says. It says that you have to say 
the armor appears indistinguishable from a normal suit of armor. Which is a very vague kind of non-answer, but it is not specifically, no, it's fine, it's not a trap, I promise. I don't know, it's, it's, we, we have slightly differing opinions on how serious of an issue it is, I guess. So, <laughs> yeah, so I think you're right. I think there is a, it, it all comes down to intonation and how, and this is like a weird thing about D&D that is super important is, is how you say the words that you say as DM. I, I read it kind of flat. I read it as it is indistinguishable from it. It is, you know, somebody makes an investigation check. You say it is a regular suit of armor. I think, you know, even in, in intonation, there is a world of information that is being imparted by saying it is a regular suit of armor. Again, I think that it's a difference in what you as the DM are allowing to give to the players. So it's the in my mind, it is the same as saying yeah, this is a regular suit of armor, but it's weird that it's standing here. Saying it like that, like, it seems to be a regular suit of armor, is another kind of means of helping the players. Whereas, as I understand it, it is, you know, as the DM, what you are pressured to say by these rules is, it is a regular suit of armor. And, yeah, and there's two different ways to DM D&D. One of them is to be flat, and one of them is to help your players. And I would play either one of those and. I think both ways would be fine. Even if even if I straight up lied and I was like, yeah, it's fine. I wouldn't feel bad at all. <laughs> so the thing that makes me feel bad about this is that, you know, you have you have your rogues. So me as rogue boy, yeah. I uh, you know, you have your skills, you have your investigation and you want to feel empowered when you make these build choices. So to have a trait that expressly foils uh, a, a part of your build that could mean, you know, you, you, there's a version of D&D where you as the rogue, you look for traps. That's what you do. That is your, that is your benefit to the party. I think having a skill that expressly foils that, that, you know, that, uh, that benefit, that, um, the, that thing that you do for the party feels kind of wrong and unfair. Okay, yeah, I, I, I see where you're coming from. It's just, I'm on the converse side of it, where I don't think a rogue should be able to figure this one out. This is kind of like a magic trap, and it, as such, a wizard would be able to figure this out with a snap of his fingers and ten minutes of sitting in a corner. But, yeah, yeah, I don't know, man. It's, it's the, I think that there should be more things that only wizards can figure out. I don't know, I because wizards... Up until they become cataclysmically powerful, I feel like at lower levels, wizards just ain't got a lot going on. And I think letting wizards be the only ones who can detect certain traps is cool, which is why I like arcane locks and arcane traps. Yeah, I like glyphs um, too. I like glyphs as much as the next guy. But then <laughs> I I think yeah. that, you know, it, the wizard is always going to be the kind of second line of defense, where in this case of glyphs and magical traps, they still have an investigation threshold. So in a in your traditional D&D party, the rogue is always going to pick out the thing first and then the wizard steps in to disarm the magical problem. Yeah, I see and, what you mean. And then in this case, the rogue is being immediately foiled by the trait. So even the wizard is still not going to bother because the rogue is going to say, no, it's a regular suit of armor. Let's move on. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know, man. 
I don't have a clear-cut answer for this one that'll satisfy everybody. So I think this is a vestige from the kind of save or die legacy in D&D, where you yeah. could kind of, no, where nobody was attached to their character. They didn't think about D&D in that way. So these kind of, you know, screw job kind of traps weren't such a big deal. I, uh, I think that in this day and age, carrying over that idea is not as beneficial and is not in the spirit of the game that D&D is now. I think that I would just kind of get rid of this and just have uh, an investigation threshold. Yeah, I suppose so. That just feels boring. That just feels boring to me. It's I don't know what it is. No, it doesn't need to feel boring because the idea is as the DM, you are the idea is that you want to bait your players, like I said, with the idea of bringing up patterns and then breaking those patterns in your level design. You want to give the players just enough weirdness and not like you're not um you're not being heavy-handed with it. You're just kind of oh, there's a statue over here, and if the players notice it, that's where the fun comes in, right? It doesn't need to be boring because all you say as DM is you're in a room with a chandelier, a carpet, and a suit of armor, and ideally, you know, two or three rooms ago, the players will remember that, oh, we were in an armory with a missing suit of armor. That's weird. Let me investigate that. And that is the challenge. It's not the, the dice roll itself. It is the players getting to that moment in their brains you know? Yeah. So I think that's where the fun comes in. Because I agree, just, you know, I, the DC-17 to expose this glyph is not cool, but the players being like, oh, this is, uh, we're, we're in a wizard bank. This vault is probably defended. I'm going to, I'm going to investigate it. And it's you providing a world that is consistent and rational and allowing the players to use the brains to figure out where traps might be placed is the fun of it, not necessarily the rolling aspect of it. Yeah, I get you. I 100% agree with the whole, the entirety of it. <laughs> the, o the only thing I was having kind of a, a fight with was the having a DC to investigate it. Um, yeah. But, you know. Yeah. Because, like, obviously, my favorite thing is making players recognize that something happened. But, like, to me, as soon as a player is like, I want to investigate that statue, I don't have them roll for it. I just be like, something's weird about the statue. <laughs> like, you don't know what. It looks like a regular statue, but... Yeah. And I, I guess that's your prerogative. And again, it comes down to what a DM is willing to regulate in terms of information. I don't know. I'm not the biggest fan of rolling, like, as a system. I'm not super i don't know i go back and forth on whether or not having that element of chance is fun for me because i traditionally roll very badly i think you know there's there's something to be said for your way of doing it of not bothering with the roll <laughs> and saying that this is a regular st and again it comes down to like very minute things like inflection you know? oh yeah for sure that's i think that's that's one of the problems that isn't ever uh dictated in anything about D D is that 80 to 90% of being a DM is your inflection, what you describe, how you describe it. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, <laughs> like, legitimately true. 70 or whatever the bullshit statistic is, who knows if it's actually true, but, like, 70% of communication stems from stuff that is not being said. Yeah, and there's... It's, like... We've we've talked about this for way too long at this point. No, this is I, perfect, because there are only three <laughs> monsters. We gotta fill this time out somehow. I, I guess so, but... 
we we've talked about the same thing and argued back and forth and said the same points over and over again. But like for real, like it the, from the bottom of my heart, I think that if you were to take away the fact that this armor could blend in with its environment wholly with no one being able to physically see with their eyeballs that something is weird about it. You take away the the possibility of the magic of players having to focus on the environment. It's like I I th- it's it feels like this trait is here very specifically for that one thing that plagues D&D so much of a player walking into the room and going I roll investigation. <laughs> yeah. And that that is a there might be a kernel of truth there. That that I I think is actually the best defense I've heard of this trait so far. I th- yeah, I think there's something to be said for that. Like the o- the only other creatures I can think of aren't in this book, but it's a uh the paper mimic from the Tome of Tome of Beasts. Mm. It's it looks like an ordinary slip of paper and it slips into a book and you cannot see it until you open to that page of the book and at which point it attacks you. And there's no way to see it's in there without detect magic. And I'm totally fine with that. I I don't know. There's like something about little things, like things that can't kill you instantly. If this armor did like 30 points of damage with a punch, I could see it being a problem. Well, we'll get to that in a second with the rug of smothering. <laughs> yeah, sure. I could see that being a problem with false appearance. But like you, I feel like you don't use these unless they're supposed to either... You don't use these unless they are supposed to cheap shot your party, or you know your party will be able to figure it out with magic. Yeah. I think that uh, this all comes down to how a DM uses it, and how a DM communicates to their players, and false appearance is a super cool trait that really would shove home, you should have paid attention to the players who are not paying attention. (laughs) Yeah. I think, um, I think that is a a fairer read of it than I previously had. Or you can still not like it. Like, people can not like things. <laughs> I, uh... I think there is a better way. I think that for the party that does, you know, does the investigation check every single room, there are better ways to counter that strategy than by having a trait that just makes investigation value... The investigation roles not mean anything. Right. So, like, for the party that searches every single room... I think the the better counter to that is um, surprise encounters, you know, where you make that time mean something, where ah. if they spend 10 minutes searching every room and they have, you know, who knows how long, where every minute could mean another encounter, I think that is the 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 more maybe elegant way of doing that, where you are discouraging your players from breaking the game in that way. As opposed mm-hmm. to having this trait, which breaks that system, which breaks the investigating system. How would you like? Let's let's flip this over. Okay. Without f- false appearance, doesn't exist. Okay. A person tr- rolls to investigate the suit of armor to see what's wrong with it. How do you how do you pitch to the player that it is wrong? That the, the that it, this is a that this is a problem. That this armor is a problem. How do you pitch that to a player? Uh, I would probably just have, like, a little magic sigil on it, so I would make it effectively the same thing as a glyph, and then that puts the ball in the wizard's court, and they get to feel smart about using dispel magic or whatever. I guess so, yeah. I mean, I I was gonna say you could do that anyway, but I guess... 
I guess then it comes down to the definition of normal suit of armor. So yeah, okay. I guess so. The the thing I... Ah, uh, fuck. And maybe you're right. Maybe we are spending too much time on this. Uh, looking at <laughs> yeah, the clock. Yeah, I, I, be- I believe probably 35 minutes. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> so we'll, get, we'll, get, we'll kind of breeze through the other ones. Sorry about false appearance talk. Too yeah, appearance. who knows? Who knows? Maybe most of it won't even show up in the episode because I think we did repeat ourselves a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll see. I think that the... Kind of trying to wrap this up a little bit. I think that the the thing that I just said about having there be a glyph kind of ruins these guys as defenders. Where, uh-huh. you know, if you make it very obvious that the the wizard can just disarm the creature, then it kind of defeats them as being guardians. Because any single time there's a suit of armor asking for a riddle or whatever, the the wizard can just say, I dispel it. Yeah. And by having them have a visible glyph that you get through investigating it, it makes it very obvious. But I guess at the same time, once a wizard realizes that they can just dispel magic and make these guys fall asleep, then they're just going to do it in every single encounter involving these guys regardless. Yeah. So who knows? The second question is, do you even let your players make an investigation check or does the thing attack once they get close enough? That's, you know, that's another thing to it. Uh, That kind of actually obviates this entire discussion completely yeah uh, yes (laughs) where like if you just have the thing attack before they get to it if it's supposed to be a surprise attack you just make it attack the players yeah what is a surprise attack if it's not going to attack as soon as somebody gets close (laughs) yeah so there we go there's our wrap up (laughs) yeah i feel like i feel like that was the obvious solution the whole time from far away, you can't tell it's any different. And if you get close, you get punched. Yeah, I suppose there's that. So, yeah. Well, there's, there's 35 minutes gone in the matter of 15 seconds. Well, I think it's important <laughs> to discuss whether, because we'll get to this with mimics at some point, and mimics kind of have a similar situation where they have this, you can't inspect them, you can't figure out, and then by the time you get, or even with the rug of smothering, where the consequence for failure is kind of disastrous, especially for a low-level party, it's important to talk about whether or not this trait is broken. I suppose so. Yeah, that makes sense. And so prepare, get... Hoist up your pants, because we're going to have another 35-minute discussion about this when we get to the rug of smothering. (laughs) I think I... I think I agree that false appearance is bad on the rug of smothering. Yeah. It's called the rug of smothering. Yeah. It's pretty rough. As somebody, and we'll get to this in a second, but I've been a victim of a smothering. So, uh, I, I have a vendetta against these motherfuckers. Oh, boy. So, we're still talking about the animated armor, weirdly enough. <laughs> They uh, they they have a multi-attack, which is not yes. important in the grand scheme of things, but it is a good way to, for this CR, introduce the idea of multi-attacking, right? So this could very well be the first monster that the players see that has multi-attack. Yeah, and they are very uh, marginally weak slam attacks. Yes, so in the grand scheme of things, they're just there to round out the damage. We've seen that before, but this might <laughs> Although, be... <laughs> to be fair, though, thinking about it, as a challenge rating one, if you do throw this at a party of level ones and you target the wizard, you could actually kill the wizard. Yeah, 
Yeah, and that's another reason why, you know, anti-magic susceptibility is really cool, because it allows yeah. the really weak wizard at that point to feel like a, a game changer, which is how wizards are supposed to feel all of the time. I did it, Paul. Yeah. So, yeah, so that can be kind of a cool moment where he hits you, and then he turns around and attacks the other guy, and all the players are like, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, God, multi-attack. Yeah. So that's the animated armor, finally. <laughs> Uh, this brings us to the flying sword, the second in the set. The idea slightly being... more, slightly more, just like vanilla. <laughs> yeah, we'll get through this real quick. So the flying sword, the cool bits of lore about it is that it, in the book it expressly says that the flying sword doesn't need to be a sword. It can be any sort of animated weapon, be it a. It, the The book goes out and even says it can even be a self loading crossbow, which would be kind of neat as a as an encounter that sounds awesome <laughs> yeah or at least as like a shock moment that would be kind of cool yeah you see a crossbow at the end of the hall it raises itself off the ground oh no yeah well yeah, that's a cool way because <laughs> then it subverts the like oh there's probably a tripwire that sends this crossbow off so you have the rogue searching at all the corners for tripwires and then you know at the end of this hallway the rogue is increasingly frustrated and then you just have the crossbow <laughs> fly up into the air and shoot him <laughs> That's such a dick move and I love it so much. It'd be pretty good. <laughs> so these guys uh, also have a high AC for their re reasonably low HP and CR. So it's an AC of 17, pretty good. Uh, low HP of 17 as well. And then its CR is one fourth. Uh, I was thinking about it and this could well spark off another half hour conversation. Oh boy. But I think it takes a very special kind of DM to make high AC monsters fun. Because on an encounter that relies kind of solely on the players missing a lot, so you can kill this thing pretty quickly, even at level one. The idea is that the players are missing a lot because it's flying around like crazy. I think it's, it's you know, the it relies solely on the DM to make the fiction, the narrative of missing fun, mm -hmm. to describe misses in an exciting way. Yeah, I need to work on that a lot. So do I. <laughs> Like, it's not easy. Com describing combat when, you know, you're 80 encounters into your campaign is not yeah. easy. I don't know. That's the way the cookie crumbles. Flying sword, I can think it'd be of it being fun. Like, maybe not like... You'd have to put a lot of flavor into the sword moving around and attacking in, in order to set yourself up for making misses fun. Yeah. I think because so. like if you and like if you have combat music in your game, if you are lucky enough to have combat music, mm. make it something a little fanciful. <laughs> yeah, that would be neat, like Fantasia. Yeah, well, yeah, something with like a lot of a lot of bouncing around and movements and like. Yeah. If you're fighting a bunch of things that have high AC because they're fast, make sure you have some way to describe it in a really like like I would have the flying sword probably mock you. <laughs> like, it would be it would be like bouncing around and flipping around it would occasionally like one of the attacks would be a flap on the butt like sure and you you'd go to hit it and it would just kind of like turn itself upside down out of the way and then slap your sword to the side make you hit yourself in the face yeah like, yeah and that's a that's a cute way to go with it i like that i'm just saying that it is difficult as a dm especially with misses to describe combat in an exciting way for sure once i saw ac 17 on a sword i was like oh my god yeah <laughs> and there's a little bit of that especially because it has it has a fly speed of 50 feet so yeah. that is another wrinkle especially to a level one party of making this encounter kind of frustrating yeah and it says challenge rating a fourth 
Which implies that four of them is good for a level one party. Yeah, I can see that being like, you know, fighting a bunch of bats and they're just going all over the place. Except that each of these bats then does five damage and to a level one party, that ain't nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that being problematic. Honestly, on a second, like... This is uh this is a way that you can introduce flying creatures. It might not be the best way to introduce flying creatures because the players are going to have a hard time tracking these things down. They don't really have a sense of preservation, so it's not like they're going to escape the players. They're just gonna stand there and bat at them. Um <laughs> This this is kind of another the wizard has to take care of it monster. Just yeah. magic missile. <laughs> I think that's the I think that's the thing is animated armors are creatures built for wizards to take down or animated creatures writ large. Because like dispel dispel magic you don't get until it, that's like a third level spell. Yeah. So like, yes, it's kind of a oh my god the AC is so high. Well, I guess we'll just have to magic missile. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that kind of and on second blush, I think these guys might be kind of frustrating to fight. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> Consider blind sight 10 feet. <laughs> uh, yeah, so these guys, they, they get a deck save bonus of plus four. Otherwise, it is pretty much the same as an animated armor. They just do half the damage. I, I think that is what I would do, actually, is I would lower what their blind sight radius is. Yeah, that would make them have to get in closer to the players. Yeah, just kind of, just kind of like, I'm a sword, and I'm going to run a straight line down this hallway, and if you get in my way... That old Simpsons <laughs> chestnut. <laughs> So, I, yeah, I think in practice, these guys might be a little bit frustrating to pin down. <laughs> Reading the flavor text next to the sword is exactly what you don't like. <laughs> How do you mean? <laughs> Lying next to the chest where the bones of Captain Scornblade himself, still clutching his rusty sword. Imagine my surprise when the blade flew from his bony grasp, still got the scar. <laughs> Halfling rogue. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, oh, wow, that's just a sword. And then it stabs you because you can't tell it's not just a sword. Yep, that's how it works. I think, <laughs> you know, in my in summation, and we haven't finished the rug of smothering yet, but I think my final thought on these animated creatures is that they are built to disempower the rogues and empower the wizards, for better or for worse. Let's uh, move on to the rug of smothering really quick and round, round out this episode. Yeah, the rug of smothering is going to be... There will be no positive thoughts. <laughs> I have zero positive thoughts about the rug of smothering. I think it's funny, yeah. and that's it. <laughs> it is for the group that is not attached to their characters. This this is a fun gotcha, but that is the best way I, I can... That's the, my best read on this creature. So the rug of smothering, what it is, is it's an enchanted carpet that when you get on top of it, for whatever reason, it's basically a bear trap in rug form. It slurps you into its body, it rolls up around you, cutting off your supply, and when it is attacked, the damage is transferred over to the thing inside it. Once upon a time, I had a rogue, and there I was, I wanted to plunder some chests, because that's what rogues are about. And there was a chest on top of a rug, and I inspected that chest eight ways to Sunday, only to find that when I opened the chest, the rug ate my rogue. And I think that's, you know, this is my Batman's parents. Like, these are my parents <laughs> killed by the rug of smothering. I think that maybe if that encounter had not gone that way, I would have less beef with the false appearance trait. But the idea is, you know, me as a rogue, I'm inspecting, I'm doing all that a rogue can, and regardless of 
my carefulness as a player, I still get eat. Yeah. So what does being eaten mean? Yes. So that is the very important bit about why this sucks. <laughs> yes. So yeah. So they have false appearance, which we talked about. There's a little cute bit in the lore that's like these are typically disguised as carpets of flying, so that when the victim sits on top of the rug, it's thinking that it's a carpet of flying. They're promptly swallowed, which is again a cute gotcha for the party that doesn't care, but for the party that would be frustrated by that, it feels like an unfair screw job. The way what happens when you get eaten by one of these things is, like I said before. Half the damage when the rug is grappling another creature, i.e. rolled around it, half the damage done to the rug is transferred to the creature inside it. So, not only does the rug gets, get its attack action, it also, when it does its attack, which is smother, it grapples on a hit, it restrains the thing that it hits, it blinds and suffocates the thing that it's grappling, and does 10 damage at the start of each of the target's turns, with the average at this point, it is the average escape DC of 13. So what happens is the, the, the player is stuck in the trap. Everybody takes turns beating the rug and also the target until the fight is over. And God fucking help you that it only takes one turn and not two. Because at that point, you at level one, you've probably already taken... Or, uh, so the CR for... We kind of skipped this part in the stats. The idea yeah. is that... And th this could reasonably take a little while with the half the damage being transferred to the creature inside it. The idea is that they're easy to hit the rugs. They have an AC of 12. They have a kind of modest to average HP of 33 for their CR of 2. So at second level, you're rolling with 13 HP, 13, 14 charitably, even, you know, if you're yeah. a barbarian, it's more. If you're a fighter, it's a bit more. On average, with, I believe, the average hit die being a D8, your HP is probably going to be, like, 12, 13, 14. Yeah, if you have, like, a constitution of plus 2, the average is 14. Yes. For, like, anybody with a D8. Wizard is worse off. <laughs> you could be reasonably downed and potentially killed in three turns. Maybe two. <laughs> yeah. So, like, this is really frustrating for having a trait that expressly you know, diffuses the one means of being able to preserve yourself against this danger. The thing that blows my mind about these rugs is, number one, the amount of hit points they have. Yes. In relation to the fact that damage transfer makes them only take half damage of attacks. Yes. So, like, the thing that would have made these, like, okay is if attacking the rug, like, once, maybe twice, would destroy it. But this is, like, a three to four hit kind of thing and if it's holding somebody it's like a six to eight hit kind of thing yeah it's pretty rough you're and like worst case scenario is that like the wizard gets grabbed and the rogue is like i'll help you and gets sneak attack on the rug yeah that, <laughs> and uh, then just kills the mage yeah <laughs> that is that is the worst case scenario for this kind of thing but is also shockingly plausible yeah it's it's worst case scenario but it's like the scenario it's the scenario i mean like, like the most likely thing is that the rogue is going to be the person who gets trapped like this because the rogue is the one who's checking things out scouting ahead but again sure yeah and then the dumb barbarian <laughs> yeah the rogue only has like 14 hp yeah a paladin or a barbarian comes up and is like i'll save you and divine smites the rug and then oops the rogue yeah. is dead because the party has no way of knowing in advance that the damage is going to transfer. 
Like yeah, this becomes a solely meta game fight. Like I mean, if they, if if they know if they know outside of the fight that like rugs of smothering exist, maybe they'll be cautious. But so like, yeah, so <laughs> the idea is after the first person attacks, you know, you know the the the, the devious trick. Yeah, <laughs> sure. The best, you know, the the way that you could get out of this would be maybe an assist check where the fighter assists the rogue with uh, an acrobatics or an athletics check to get out of the rug. Well, I think that it kind of, that this this idea suffers from like the way that fifth edition works in general, is that things can grapple things all the time. And like the only thing you have to do is hit the person holding your friend and then they'll let your friend go. Yeah. And then this plays off of that knowledge and does the opposite. <laughs> Yeah, so you're pretty much guaranteed at least a little hit. Yeah. Uh, and potentially, depending on how much, like if it is a fighter or a barbarian or, you know, some, another, maybe not another rogue, there is a chance of being downed in like a turn if you yeah. roll badly. Like, worst case scenario, you got a barbarian with a greatsword. Like yes. I think that the rug of smothering is too harsh for the trait that you know, for the gotcha trait that it has. What would you do? What would I do? It? So yes. the way that I think these guys work is uh, not in their perhaps intended way. I think that the way to use these guys is to have them be effectively bear traps. You know, bear traps for a mage. Like if you're scaling the wizard tower and mm -hmm. you don't want to use actual bear traps, here are your bear traps. And <laughs> during the final boss fight or during a combat encounter you sprinkle rugs all over the area and then the rugs are just you know environmental hazards during this encounter that sounds hilarious because you know you enter a room it's entirely littered with rugs something's <laughs> gotta be up right don't walk on the rugs you see you see the big bad mage at the other side of the room like come on yeah <laughs> come at me yeah <laughs> <laughs> come get some yeah come on cross my room of rugs <laughs> I love this boisterous wizard <laughs> that we've created <laughs> hey get a piece so yeah so that's how I would use these guys is I would strip I would make it like devastatingly apparent that the rugs are dangerous and I would just use them as environmental hazards okay. and like the they can be you know it can be kind of they, the best part, I think the cutest thing about these rugs of smothering is that they have a walking speed. They have a walking speed of 10 feet. And yeah. I just imagine <laughs> a, a carpet inchworming along. So that could be, they could be movable environmental hazards, which is kind of a neat spin on a dangerous arena, right? Yeah. You're kind of, <laughs> you spend the entire fight not only trying to get the mage, but you're also being pursued by like 10 rugs. <laughs> Very slowly inchworming their way across the floor. Yeah, I think that is a fair kind of even fight that feels good to my mind. I, I think the only thing I would change about them is either make their HP just a little lower or make it so that damage transfer didn't half the damage they take. Yeah, I think, yeah, any way you can reduce that kind of number tax that these guys in instigate. I think just doing that, that I think that's enough. The transfer th the damage transfer making it so that the creature grappled still takes half damage. 
half of the damage dealt, but the rug takes the full damage still. Yeah. To my mind, that seems like a perfect balance. Like, I don't know why the rug gets resistance to all damage once it's holding something. Yeah, I think that is fair. For CR2, I think that means the you could probably take care of one of these things in a turn or two. I mean, with false appearance and everything, it's already, like, if we're playing it as, like, rules is written, it's got something. Like, there's no way that you encounter a rug of smothering where it has not grabbed one of your party members. So, like, I, I feel like, sure, you then end the fight in two rounds, but you do have to smack your friend. Like, Yeah, I think, yeah, I'm, I'd have to, like, crunch the numbers. Um, sure. I think any way to make this a single turn thing and the, the encounter, quote unquote, is just how we gotcha and not necessarily a fight. Okay, can consider Rug of Smothering with 15 hit points, but both it and the thing it grapples take full damage. Uh, well, like, again, the rogue having 14 hit points, I think that is, again, a bit too harsh for the CR that you engage with it in. 10 hit points. Yeah, like, 10 or 5. Again, I think, like, I'm fine with these guys being kind of incredibly inept, numerically like in terms of their stats in every way except for the dc to escape from them right i think that these guys i think that they were not presented as an actual threat i think these guys their entire the entire what the developers of these rugs what the monster makers had in mind was this entire encounter hinges on the gotcha and then everything else is just icing on the cake i think that you know i I gotta, I gotta watch my figure. I can't have so much icing. <laughs> Just, I'm fine with the gotcha. Can we move on? Unless you're making these guys a part of a greater encounter, in which case, yeah, I'll take inchworming bear traps. Yeah, the the scenario you presented is probably my favorite thing I've ever heard. So, when I started this and said rug of smothering, no positives, I take that back. <laughs> Orion has pitched a scenario in which I think there is a positive. Yeah. I, I'm not about these guys, really. In their current state, I'm not about them. It's funny, because, like, I am very much, as I've said previously, I'm very much in the, yeah, fuck the players sometimes. But, like, <laughs> this this one's, like, too much for me. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I agree. I'm so, I love mimics. I love things that well, punish players for not paying attention. This one's just, like, this is too much. Yeah, and I, again, <laughs> I'll say it again. I think with Mimics and with these guys, the encounter is the gotcha, and everything after that is redundant. And then, like, compare this to Dark Souls, where a Mimic is, like, a pretty decent fight encounter. Yeah. That would be nice if after, you know, you get you take your one turn where the, the monster grapples you. As soon as it breaks free, it becomes like an ogre, and then it turns into its own thing. Yeah. I never even thought about that. Just make these guys an actual encounter after the gotcha, if you want to do yeah. that. Yeah, that's, I, you know what? That's actually a really neat idea for a design of a monster, is have them have a gotcha attack that they can't use again once they gotcha. Yeah, because, like, fool me once, shame on me. No, fool me once. Wait, hold on. <laughs> I had a joke, and then it went badly. I'm so fooled. Yeah, fool me once. I fucked up. I'm not going to fuck up again. So, like, once, you know, you you only need to do this one time, and then the players are never going to trust another rug again, 
the rest of their careers. Yeah, plus, like, the idea that... I I like the idea that the rug of smothering can get you from surprise, but, like, once you're in a fight with it... mm. Yeah, and that's that's what I'm trying to say, is that it's not fun to fight one of these things. It would be a lot cooler if, after you did the gotcha, and then it turned into a real fight. Yeah, it turns into a rug dragon. Yeah, fucking whatever. Rug dragon's great. Let's do that. (laughs) Hold on, after we're done recording this, I'm gonna go stat out a rug dragon. Yeah. That is the rug of smothering. Yeah, that was <laughs> due to our fighting. Uh, we somehow managed to talk way more about animated objects than we thought we would. Yeah, it's magic. It's the magic of podcasting. <laughs> I would say that uh, do not feel beholden to the objects presented here. The animated armor, the flying sword, the rug of smothering. Think about other objects that you could just animate and uh, for fun. Yeah. Like, you enter a witch's hut, she's got animated frying pans. Yeah, like, that'd be cute. And I, I think a lot of the charm of these, especially with the flying sword, a lot of the charm is the thing that it becomes. <laughs> animated armor? What are we, like, it's just an animated, like, it's it's a series of broomsticks wearing bard's clothes. Yeah, like, it'd be pretty good. I think Just yeah. some silly shit. Yeah, I think these guys were designed to be... Kind of silly, kind of whimsical, kind of gotcha-y, very Fantasia. Uh, And I think the more you make it about the surprise and the less you make it about the actual fight, the better it is. Unless you use these guys as supplements for a more serious combat encounter. Can I pitch you? Can I pitch you an animated rug? Yes. The rug of tripping? (laughs) Where it just makes you fall prone if you walk over it? Yeah. Yeah. And it fights you by swooping underneath your legs and just trying to sweep the legs. Yeah, yeah, that'll work. That, that's, that's it. That's all it does. Yeah, and then it, yeah, the the number tax is re- removed, and the the after effect of the gotcha is a lot more streamlined. I think that works pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So that's going to end it for our <laughs> our dual episode on animated objects and then false appearance. <laughs> I I hope you enjoyed listening to this crazy ass thing that we did. Yeah, it's a thing. It's yeah. a thing that happened. I think, you know, I think it's important cuz I think this is one of the traits in the game that comes up time and time again that I've had some real problems with and still, you know, I'm not entirely convinced that is that it's uh, a great thing, but I understand why perhaps they would implement it. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah, and if if it hadn't been made clear in any episode prior to this, I think in this one it is portrayed most that this podcast is not only about monster design, but is also about us complaining about game design. Yeah, I, I think that's <laughs> valuable, and I think that's cool, and I think that's going to be, I don't know, I think that's neat. I like games. Yeah. We're as passionate about game design as we are monster design. Yeah. So, until next time, ladies, gentlemen, or what have you, what did what did we learn? I learned that if I if I walk into a room that has too many rugs, maybe I should just turn around. Yeah. Ah. 
How did we fucking do that? How did we talk for an hour and a half? This was an- I was supposed to do this 45 minutes. Yeah. Yeah.